Hello, y'all. Welcome back to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're exploring what Christian sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire. Through Christian scripture and our various traditions, what guidance can we find and imagination can we practice as white folks about our role in resistance and showing up in practices of repentance and liberation? My name is Reverend M. Jade Kaiser. My pronouns are they, them, and I am one of three co-directors and a co-founder of a collective called Enfleshed, where we create and facilitate spiritual nourishment for collective liberation. I'm recording this episode on the land of the Iowa, Oto, Meskwaki, and Sauk people, currently referred to by some as Iowa City, Iowa. This podcast is a project of Surge Faith and is particularly designed for white Christians. White Christians talking to other white Christians about race and white supremacy, about being a part of returning and tending all relations. We believe white Christians have a responsibility to commit ourselves to resisting white supremacy, to speaking up and showing up and disrupting white supremacy where we find it, especially through the Christian tradition. Any of us white folks who have grown up with a relationship to Christianity, whether conservative, liberal, evangelical, or progressive, have inherited Christian-specific facets of white supremacy that we have the power and responsibility to unlearn and imagine anew, including our conception of the divine. We do this work remembering we are building up a new world. This live recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's Song for the Freedom Movement is of a multiracial movement choir practice in Denver, Colorado in December 2014, led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. A moment of grounding today, I want to offer uh, a recording of the forest. Uh, I'm gathering this from tree.fm, where you can listen to hours on end of recorded songs and forests across the globe. Uh, And so I want to invite you to just sink into the sounds of our creaturely kin surrounding us uh, for 30 seconds and uh, remember, remember, as Mary Oliver would say, your place in the whole of things. Um, and may, may that uh, be an invitation into a story that uh, both loves and values you and is so much larger than any of us as individuals. So. Uh, receive these holy sounds.
gratitude to the birds and the land and the trees who give us breath. Um, I'm now going to read our text for today, which is John chapter 17, verses 1 through 11. Uh, making some slight adaptations to disrupt compulsory masculinity of God. Uh, and also um, just want to name the sort of complications of a phrase you will hear in here, which is uh, the phrase, the only true God. And I think that is pretty much always a complicated claim, uh, but far less so relative to its impact. Um, when it's understood as a phrase within a uh, either minority, marginalized, oppressed, um, or isolated religious uh, experience or system, uh, such as the ancient uh, Jewish folks, um, to claim the only true God in that context is very, very different than claiming that phrase as a truth in the context of um, a religion that is entangled with empire, such as Christianity. And so I just want to note the different impacts there um, and uh, the importance of, uh, yeah, staying in tune with those differences as we engage a text from an ancient community who experienced uh, religious marginalization, uh, while we relate to the words from a context where Christian supremacy is, uh, is, 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 <laughs> um, so just, just that little footnote there, um, but I digress, um, please hear this reading of John the Gospel of John, yeah. After Jesus had spoken these words, he looked up to heaven and said, Holy Parent, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all people to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. So I just, I find it so interesting um, that the lectionary chooses to put this text here. Um, John chapter 17 is actually unfolding uh, around uh, Holy Week. And here we are on the very last Sunday of Easter with this essentially Monday, Thursday text. Um, which I just, I'm fascinated by, and I, yeah, I wish I could hear uh, a multitude of reasons that might be, though I, I have a few thoughts myself, but um, but it is, yeah, important to sort of consciously put it back where it belongs in the story, uh, which is the, the setting is... Um, often referred to as the farewell discourse. Uh, it's a few chapters long, and the farewell discourse takes place at the end of the Last Supper. Uh, and so I want to invite you to sort of bring your mind and heart back to that intimate setting where Jesus knows he's about to be arrested, 
uh, and he's looking at these people uh, that he has lived with um, in the most like intimate ways that he has struggled with, that he has taken on as his disciples, um, that he has wrestled with, uh, that he has moved through the world healing and feeding and teaching and rebuking power and seeking liberation among um while also holding in his heart um the likelihood that his uh his life is coming to a probable end and in a very painful way um and still instead of just caving to that fear which I sure think I would. Um, he's still able to hold care for the disciples in that. And it's just incredible. He's thinking about uh, what's to come for them. He's thinking about what he wants for them. He's thinking about, um, and not even just thinking, he's praying actually uh, in this particular text. Uh, but in the prior chapters, in the farewell discourse, he is, he's talking more directly with them about uh, about some of these things on his mind um about taking care uh, taking care of each other when being persecuted and oppressed um uh yeah about following through on the the teachings that he has passed down about um expecting to be hated by the world and um encouraging them to remember that they are not the first um, who have experienced that and that there's a long lineage of faith to to draw on in those moments. Um, it's all really uh, moving. Um, and one, I think it's important to put the whole thing back in that context for like a million different reasons, uh, but also because I don't know about you, but I find this text just a bit challenging to um, to connect with it just feels like a lot of a lot of words that don't have a very clear uh meaning just there's there's some real religious jargon happening here um and so i think putting it back in the context of that moment when you just you just hear jesus's earnest desire um uh under the the you know the looming cross it just helps to put a little flashback on it i think at least to me um and so just wanted to to reorient in that way um and then i also you know it's the last episode for us um in our failure lab series where we're thinking about sort of the inevitability of mistakes um how we recover from them um what what they what mistakes and failure sort of looks like in our um in our work of liberation uh and in our whiteness specifically uh, and so I have that on my mind in this moment and and of course anytime I think about the last supper uh, and I'm thinking about, you know, Jesus praying for the disciples and again for their like, I, I hear both in the chapters prior and the text following our text and even in our text, I hear a like, 
oh, I hope they, you know, I hope they stay connected to these teachings. I hope they keep hanging on to each other, even when persecuted. I hope they, you know, remain uh, sort of grounding in your presence, God. Um, and so, of course, I feel like I'm putting my hand on my heart. You can't see me, but I feel like a tender ache than thinking about Peter following this moment um, as Jesus is arrested and people start recognizing him as, you know, a disciple of Jesus, uh, the way that he, I mean, he fails three times, right? He betrays uh, God, he betrays himself, he betrays his beloved friend and teacher who is you know, going through it, to say the least, um, because he's scared. And that's, I think that's probably more often than not, uh, the reason we, we make big, uh, hurtful mistakes, especially to those closest to us. Um, and so I just, anyway, so I guess I'm just, I'm just appreciating that the scriptures um, sort of reveal uh, failure within not just quote unquote enemies or even strangers, but within the disciples. Um, I think I like the way that it shows both uh, that we're kind of the same humans we've always been in the sense of struggling with fear and power and dominance um, and uh, how it yeah, sort of keeps us from scapegoating uh, failure as something that either you can grow out of, you can become so wonderful like Peter who never failed, it prevents that. Um, and it also prevents a kind of like, oh, nobody would have failed Jesus and his immediate circle. But like, no, even, even those who were like most committed failed at some point. Um, and I just, that's just real. We do that. We all do that. Um, and I, yeah, I like that the scriptures uh, keep it real in that way. Uh, so that was on my mind. Um, and then the other thing that caught my attention about, about this text uh, shows up in verse four. Um, so again, this this part of the story is the night of Jesus's arrest. He has not yet been arrested yet. And in verse four, he says, I glorified you by finishing the work you gave me to do. The next verse begins, so now, God, glorify me. Um, and I, this is just, caught my attention um, because of the way Jesus seems very clear in this moment um, that the work that God has called him to do is complete, is finished. Um, and I don't think of that as in checking boxes kind of finished, um, but I think of that as the cross is looming. Um, he knows he's going to be arrested imminently. And I hear him in this, this moment sort of claiming a like, I've done, 
I've done what I could do in this time frame. Um, and I, I just really love him saying this here uh, because for Jesus to say that he has finished the work God has called him to do pre-crucifixion um, is one little example of the text uh, offering a different uh, approach to Jesus than we often uh, theologize in current contexts around atonement or um, sort of being the cross being a place of kind of sacrifice. Um, here, it sounds to me like Jesus is saying the work God called me to do was the stuff that I've already done, which is, you know, healing and feeding and uh, teaching and mentoring and loving. So the other thing that's brought to mind for me was, um, <clears throat> is Dr. Brian Blunt's work, um, specifically on Revelation and the Black Church. Um, and integrating the wisdom of the Black church in understanding Revelation. And it's relevant, well, it's stuck with me since I, I think I first was introduced to his work in like 2010, and it has just been so applicable um, over the years. Uh, and so this has really stuck with me. Um, but he talks about the difference between a martyr and a wit. How we think now about what it means to be a martyr is very different than uh, what the Greek had in mind. Um, and so he shifts us to understanding Jesus as a witness. And so I just want to acknowledge that the scripture indeed uses the word martyr, but a way to understand how they meant what they meant by martyr is more akin to our current understanding of the word witness. Um, and one way we might think about these differences uh, is that modern day thinking about martyrdom uh, might be akin to uh, being making oneself a sacrifice uh, for others or a belief. Um, and a witness um, would be, well, is actually, he bases it on the Greek understanding of martyr which was essentially um, the person who would show up in court to give testimony based on personal experience, um, which we would in current times uh, be more likely to refer to as a witness. Um, but it is a legal term uh, when it's being used in the scripture. Uh, and yeah. So that's kind of technical, but I just, I really love this distinction and I find it so important for a multitude of reasons. I'm going to say it one more time. So a martyr being uh, someone who either is or makes a significant sacrifice, sometimes to the point of death, uh, because of uh, its benefit to others or uh, commitment to a belief. A witness is going to be someone who either testifies or embodies uh, a perspective on something and then is willing to then endure 
the consequences of that witness. Um, and if we think back to this text and Jesus saying, I have finished the work you have called me to do before his crucifixion, um, even though there are a lot of modern takes that would identify Jesus as a martyr, would say that he is uh, willingly making himself a sacrifice uh, for the sake of belief or and or others. Um, Dr. Blunt, I think, would say, I don't think he specifically says it in this way, uh, but I will say it. I think uh, it is far more true to say Jesus is a witness who then bore the consequences of that witness, which in his case were crucifixion. Um, what I love about this is that it means God is not uh, the one actively uh, desiring, willing, or requiring uh, Jesus to be executed by the state. Um, and, and I think gives us a much more useful and generative framework for holy resistance when we start thinking of Jesus less as martyr and more as witness. Um, and it matters what we say Jesus was because in our faith, we are often uh, encouraged to uh, follow in the footsteps of Jesus um, and to teach others to and to find a sort of understanding of God's love in his life. And so when we when we are told or we perceive him as a martyr, that suggests, well, if we are loving uh, and if we are faithful, then we will be martyrs. Um, and I think specifically when it comes to this question of failure and mistake and like betraying, betraying our values, our faith, our God, our BIPOC siblings, uh, the earth, um, the list can go on. Uh, I think this question might be relevant and that when we fail, what do we do with shame and guilt? I think we do a lot of different things with it to varying degrees of <laughs> helpfulness to ourselves or others. Uh, but I think one of the challenging uh, things that we can move into is a sense of martyrdom as a fix for the mistake or failure. Um, and I think sometimes we can get caught up in a like, well, now I must be or make a sacrifice in order to make up for, in order to atone for that sin, if you will. Um, and there's no question that part of that comes from exactly this particular theology, right? But rarely is our making ourselves a martyr, being or enduring a significant sacrifice, rarely is that on its own actually useful, liberative, reparative, more often than not, it's about us trying to like tend our own uncomfortableness. Um, and it's a fine line. It's a fine, fine line. And I will say that I think there are certainly times for that. I just think they are 
far less common <laughs> than um, that. It's far, it's very rare that that's really what liberation is calling for is an individualized sacrificial act. That's just, it's just going to be rare. It's not that it doesn't happen, but it's rare. But what is not rare is how desperately uh, the world needs all of us to be witnesses to justice, to liberation, to right relationship, to repair, to healing, to humility, to courage, to a God of deliverance, of liberation from empire. Um, and then to be willing to follow through, to stay with that witness, even when there are consequences. Yes, to the point of death, but often, more often, uh, to the point of social ostracization, to the point of uh, loss. Yeah, I think I'm, I think I'm kind of going to stop there just with the, the invitation to consider and I'm certainly leaving my rambling with some things to consider for myself about, um, again, I think there are so many different ways that we respond to our mistakes, our failures, others' mistakes and others' failures, um, but with, with some renewed attention to, um, when there are instincts again like in small or significant ways towards uh towards being a martyr towards being placing oneself in the position of sacrifice um as a means of trying to atone for something uh versus contributing to a larger uh lineage and movement and faith in repair, which is not to say that it shouldn't be still very intimate. Um, repair is sometimes about mending interpersonal breaches. Um, and I think even those deeply personal and interpersonal breaches, mistakes, and failures are um, both shaped in and always held by a larger context um, where we are being encouraged in directions away from each other. Uh, and so, yeah, when, how can we orient ourselves towards uh, tending our mistakes and failure, even when we feel guilt and shame, uh, by being a witness, um, both honest about uh, our own mistakes and failures, um, but not centering our, not centering our ourselves as sacrifices, uh, but instead drawing attention to the things that are repressed. Um, to the detriment of of the those we fail, um, or the movements and within we, we make mistakes. Um, yeah, may we be faithful witnesses, beloveds. It is 
it is the way of repair. It is the way of courage. It is the way of liberation. Um, active witnesses, embodied witnesses, uh, courageous even in the face of consequences. Um, may it be so. In this week's call to action, I invite you to spend some time thinking about one truth to which you feel God calling you to be a witness, and then three ways you make that witness in a material fashion, whether it be with your time, your resources, your actions, your words, your commitments, try to get concrete. What does that witness look like in your daily life? You might also consider how you understand your witness to be different than being a martyr for the same cause. How does your witness serve the work of liberation? And how can you train your spiritual muscles to be ready for the difficult work of staying true to witness when the consequences inevitably unfold? Thanks, as always, for joining us. We'd love to hear from y'all, and especially folks of color and non-Christian folks, by commenting on our SoundCloud or Twitter or Facebook pages or filling out the survey on our podcast page at surge.org. Give us a like or rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you check out our podcast. You can find out more about Surge at surge.org, where you can sign up for Surge Faith Updates and find transcripts for every episode which includes references, resources, and action links. Next week, we'll have a resistance word from Dr. Sharon Finema. And finally, so much gratitude for the work of our sound editor for this episode, Claire Hitchens, who makes this magic happen. Thank you so much, Claire. Dear ones, we make mistakes, small and terrible. We fail in little ways and in hard, serious ways. This is challenging and uncomfortable. And yet, we need not be a sacrifice, but we can be a witness to repair, to freedom, to justice, to the holy way of Christ, consequences and all. God equips us, and we are never alone on the journey. So may we be a courageous, joyous, faithful witness to the world.